Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler and this is Ruler Conversations. I'm joined today on the phone by James Start from the heart of La France Profonde. James is at the Criterium du Dauphiné, hot from the finish of stage three, which has just been won by Christophe Laporte. James, do you remember we ran that brilliant feature in Rouleur a few months back, Le Diagonal du Vide, the empty diagonal, which is about central France. Uh, you texted me earlier and said you were basically right in the middle of it. Yeah, indeed I was. I love that, that feature and... I knew that we were going to be uh, going through parts of that uh, in the opening stages here of the Dauphiné. And today, all of a sudden, I felt like I was in the heart of that region now. I mean, why? Because for 200 kilometers, I will be honest with you, I don't think I, I saw one road sign pointing to a town that I knew. And I've lived in France for 30 years. I've done 34 tours de France. So I have been to the France Profonde. I know the heart of France. And I was lost out there today. Just lost. I saw the stage towns on the map and maybe somewhere in the middle of Saint-Étienne, which is obviously you know, a city on the eastern reaches of the Massif Central, maybe between that and Vichy, not a huge distance from Lyon, but you know, far enough that not really anywhere near it. And it's just the middle of nowhere, isn't it? Yeah, we were hovering somewhere between, you know, like, I guess Clermont, Vichy, Clermont-Ferrand, Vichy and sunny Saint-Étienne. I mean, none of those places are really a hotspot vacation destinations. And they're nice towns, but, you know, you don't really think of going there for this, you know, as a, as a real destination. And like I said, I think I only saw one sign today pointing towards like Saint-Étienne. Otherwise, I didn't see anything. And it was a 200 kilometer stage. That's a lot of ground to cover. So I was like, wow, where? It kind of floored me. And then the other thing, I mean, it's a rugged stage. I mean, there, the last, there was not one kilometer flat roads and there hasn't been for three days, really. It's just always rolling. I mean, this is probably the flattest, but still, there are climbs out there that aren't even listed as climbs. And it's just a very rugged terrain. The, the towns are stone houses with very little color. And they're kind of picturesque, but they're very rustic. And what's the, the landscape's kind of more like a slightly higher plateau, isn't it? It's not like the plains which you get around Paris and northern France. Well, not at all. It's funny because we were at a bed and breakfast last night and the couple running it, uh, had moved down here 
from, I think she said she was from, where did she say she was from? Was it Lille or something, you know? And so she was like, oh, it's nice to have the mountains. And there weren't exactly mountains, but I guess if you come from Lille, they sure are. So it does have a charm, I will say that. It's very green, very lush, very rolling. So it has a certain charm, but it's really remote. And so far in the Dauphiné, three stages, three French winners. The locals must be happy. Oh, they, I mean, yeah, they're, they're breaking open the champagne, I think, in the press room. I mean, they're just out on the besides themselves. I think it's pretty amazing. I mean, Christophe Laporte, you know, he's a very good rider, and he's won stages in, like, Paris and stuff, even before he went to Jumbo Vismo. But he's obviously come into his own with with this team, is really uh, integrated quickly and gets their support and gives back also, as we saw last year in the Tour de France. I mean, when... You know, they helped him win his stage, and he did a lot of work for the team and the rest of the race. So, and just a very powerful sprinter. I mean, I really did not think today that he was going to win. Yesterday, the day before, I knew he was going to be there because they were rugged stages that were, you know, a lot of the pure sprinters would get shelled. But today, I really thought it was going to be like Sam Bennett, Dylan Groenwegen, guys like that. And they were right there, but Laporte came out on top. Yeah, because stage one, he won... It's a much more selective sprint from many fewer riders. When I saw the top, I didn't actually watch the stage, but when I saw the top 10, I thought, yeah, the really big sprinters weren't there. But today he outsprinted Dylan Groenwegen and Sam Bennett, who between them have at one point or another been among the very, very best sprinters in the world and won multiple stages of the Tour de France. Well, I think they still are the very best. They're really good. But that's just, you know, the stage was slow and it got a little chaotic because there was a protest, a social protest that sort of shut the race down for a little bit. I don't think it really slowed the race down in terms of timing or anything. I think we're still on course. But it was sort of rolling neutralized for a while. And I think that kind of destabilized things. So really, the teams weren't like driving at the front, say 30, 40K out. I mean, they're just rolling each team, you know, at the front going quick, but as a pack spread across the road and then he just wound it up and wound it up to this you know i thought it was just a pure speed sprint and still laporte came out on top because i mean going and, and bennett were right there bennett was destroyed afterwards he was really disappointed and I, he went really deep and still got beat it was just a pure sprint to sprint and you know christophe laporte has showed today he's also just got a lot of pure speed do you know much about him because he's, he's been around for quite a few years hasn't he rode with cofidis before and was just in that level where he's up there in Coupe de France races, like I said, Paris-Nice stages. But he's just blossomed in the last couple of seasons. Yeah, the jumbo thing has been a really good move for him, obviously. And he just upped his game another level. You know, when he was at Cofidis, he was sort of a leader, one of the sprint leaders. But he just didn't have, you know, he didn't have the structure, he didn't have the horsepower around him that he has at jumbo. So he's just... Being surrounded by that has just helped him take his game up another notch. And then having guys like, you know, Wu Van Art like, hand you victories in races like Dan Pebblegam, well, <laughs> that helps too, right? Very true. Is there any sense of the atmosphere at Jumbo Visma at the Dauphiné? You know, the Dauphiné is considered by many the, the key Tour de France final preparation race. And a lot of guys, I mean, and Jumbo came here with the defending Tour de France champ, Jonas Vingegaard. And you get a sense very much that these teams are riding like they're they're ready for the tour. I mean, you know, Bahrain is riding together, supporting Landa. EF is at the front riding for Carapaz. And they're just, it's like, they're very much running their shops here for uh, what's going to come up in three weeks. 
And of course, in between Laporte's two stage wins, there was a stage victory for Juliana Alaphilippe, which is not something we've been accustomed to seeing in the last couple of seasons. How was that? It was brilliant. It was epic, brilliant, Alaphilippe. And, you know, he came across the line and kind of put his hands up in a, in a sort of way, that, you know, here's a patented way of going across the line, throwing up one fist in the air, punching it into the air. But that wasn't the case. He had both hands up kind of going, you know, calm down, people, calm down. And I don't know what it meant exactly. And he wouldn't say it in the press room, but it was sort of like, well, you can read whatever you want into it. But maybe he was saying, okay, let's get back to reality. I can still win bike races. I know it meant a lot to him. And on his Instagram page, he posted a picture of the sprint with three words, never dot give dot up. So I think it was a very, very satisfying victory for him. I know it was because he's taken a lot of hard hit from the last couple of years physically, just in terms of crashes and stuff. And I'm not talking about the metal games with him and Patrick Lefebvre and all that stuff. It was very satisfying. Unfortunately, he crashed today or got caught by a crash. And then he flatted in the final. So I hope that doesn't shake him up. And, and you know, tomorrow's a TT. And we'll, there's a lot of other stages that are going to be very good for him. But he can be a player in this race. So that TT kind of divides the race between the Massive Central and the High Mountains. And, you know, by the time this podcast drops, we'll be into the mountain stages. So no need to talk about those now. But I do have a couple of questions for you about the, just about the race as a whole. So the Criterium du Dauphiné has been going into the Massive Central the last few years. It actually first went there in 2017. There's a bit of background on this, that at the end of 2015, going into 2016, the French... This is getting a bit nerdy now, James, so bear with me. The French government rejigged the administrative regions of France. So there used to be 22 regions in France, and they cut the number to 13, which involved combining a few and kind of rejigging a few. And there used to be two regions called Auvergne, which is obviously the Auvergne, and Rhône-Alpes, which is the northern part of the Alpes, the kind of high mountains, as opposed to the Provençal Alpes to the south. So they made one big region out of Auvergne and Rhône-Alpes, and they called it Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes. It's a whole administrative region now, but it's quite incongruous, in my opinion, because the Auvergne is very different from the high Alps. And I think that the Dauphiné has been going into this region as well, since the region's been combined into one big region. The race has been going there. But I think these stages in the Massif Central, they would sit better, in my opinion, in Paris-Nice than in the Dauphiné. What do you think? Well, they're right out of uh, Paris-Nice, that's for sure. We've covered some of these same areas in Paris-Nice. But I quite like it, to be honest. I was sceptical a little bit because three days of racing through the Auvergne is tough. You know, I mean, today's stage was really slow going. I mean, the sprint was exciting, but the stage itself, well, how can you say what it really wasn't? Although the two one, the two stages before were very hard. That's why the sprinters got shelled. But I like it because, you know, I mean, the Dauphiné, let's, let's in, in keeping with the nerd dumb, let's not forget that before the, the Tour de France picked up the Dauphiné, it used to be called the Criterium Dauphiné Liberté, yep. which was a newspaper. And then we had the Grand Prix de Milly, which is a newspaper. And these newspapers, and historically, were, they ha- would have a, a circulation route around a region, and they would use these bike races to promote their newspapers. And that's what the, the criterion, the Dauphiné Liberté, was. But when it got picked up by ASO, by the tour, it became a different beast. And it just became the criterion of the Dauphiné, and they were around the Dauphiné region, which is south of Auvergne Rhône Alpes. And then they partnered up with the Auvergne Rhône Alpes. But what I like about it is, you know, I mean, the Dauphiné is like Paris. It's one of the world's greatest one-week races. 
And yet it very much felt like a, a regional race until it partnered up with the Auvergne. Paris-Nice is a national race. It goes from Paris to Nice. You cross through the country. And with the, this partnership, we're a little closer to that. You know, we start in, in Clermont. We go through some the stages are very different in the opening half of the week than they are in the later half. And so you get a bit more of a sense of, you know, a real tour, you know, rather than, say, a regional race. And how does it actually compare in terms of, well, both the racing and the, the landscape to when it did used to start in the Alps? Well, just more variety. That's the main thing. And a lot more variety in the landscape and in the kinds of stages that are presented. I mean, each day is different, different rates. Whereas the Criterium de uh, Dauphiné was a little more traditional. They would they would start maybe up, they'd ride down the Rhone River Valley, a, flat, a couple of flat sprinter stages, and wind up for the, the couple of stages in the Alps at the end. And here we're, you know, we're crossing through uh, the Auvergne, we do go through the Rhone River Valley, but just quicker, and then we hit the Alps. And it's going to be, you know, the last three, four days are going to be brutal. So, you know, we go up some of the classic alpine climbs. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 119, The Soul Issue. Cycling both as a sport and activity, is all about soul. As cyclists, we know that the bike is the most efficient way of getting us from A to B. But riding also makes our hearts sing. Cycling makes us feel. Rouleau 119 features an exclusive interview with Remco Evenepoel, the world champion and one of the current generation of cycling superstars. He tells us why the Giro d'Italia makes him dream and reveals how he has tried to smooth some of his rougher edges. Also in Rouleau 119, Victoria Pendleton, the multiple Olympic champion whose post-racing life has been a process of constant reinvention. The soul of bike racing. Cycling fandom in the 1980s and what it says about cycling fandom. Enzo Staiola, the former child actor who appeared in the seminal Italian movie Bicycle Thieves. A reflective journey across Morocco. Onguza bikes. Wabi Sabi and Riding in Japan, and much, much more. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Ruler 119 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button, and enter the code PODCAST15, PODCAST15, to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. So, James, there's one more thing I want to talk about, which is more topical after the recent Giro d'Italia, which we talked about last week. So the Giro was won by Primoz Rogelic by 14 seconds from Geraint Thomas. We talked about that. And there's a brief flurry of speculation in the last week that Roglic might ride the Tour de France and his team might select him for the main event of the summer. This was pretty much immediately dampened down by his team, which is obviously going to the Tour de France with the defending champion Jonas Vingegaard. Their manager, Merain Zeman, he said something quite cryptic. He said, we have other plans. Um, and I thought this was quite enigmatic and it reminded me of something I've been keeping an eye on and banging on about for a few years, which is something I call the impossible slam. And the impossible slam is the achievement of winning all three Grand Tours in a single season. 
Um, never been done before. And I should add a caveat here that I'm talking about the men's side of the sport because obviously it has been done 100% of times in on the women's side because Annemiek van Vloysen won all three women's Grand Tours last year. So I'm just talking about the men's side of the sport. And I thought when Zeman said that the team has other plans, I thought, well, maybe that plan is Roglic has won the Giro. That's done. Vingigo is the favourite for the Tour. He's the defending champion and I hope Pogacar's wrist is all right, but he's going to be short of training in advance of France. So Vingegaard's the favourite. And and then, say Vingegaard wins the Tour, a big if, obviously, they're in a position to at least work out which of the two, if not both, can hold it together long enough to try and win the Vuelta as well. And that would make them the first men's team, not only to win all three Grand Tours in a single season, but it'd be the first team to come anywhere close to it. So... A bit speculative, this is all opinions, but I contacted Ard Bierens, who's the press officer of Jumbo Visma, to ask if this was actually a thing within the team, whether they're actually talking about it as a specific target uh, or whether they're you know, just going to each Grand Tour to, to try and win it. Because every team theoretically goes to every race hoping to win. But the thing about Jumbo is they've actually got the piece in place. So... Obviously, Ard wouldn't go on record and say, yes, we're going to try and do what no other team has ever done and said it wasn't a specific goal. But then he, he texted back afterwards and said, apropos of nothing, meanwhile, our aim is to write sports history. So that's good enough for me. So, so James, they've got the riders. They've got leaders who've proven they can win these three races. They've got Roglic, who's won the Giro and has won three Vuelta's. They've got Vingegaard who's won the Tour. They've got also an incredibly strong team of mountain domestiques and flatland riders. Question is, James, can they do it? Well, you know, on paper they can. Uh, that storyline just got complicated here at the Dauphiné because they lost a key Tour de France rider with uh, Stephen Kreuzweg. Uh, crashed out and I think is going to be out of the Tour. And that happened, you know, two, three years ago, if you recall, Roglic was in, I think it was in yellow, and he crashed in Dauphiné. And I think on that same stage, I think Kreuzweg crashed out as well. I think they were going into it, you know, he, I mean, this is maybe not your everyday Tour winner, but he's been, you know, a podium finishing Tour and, and the Giro, and uh, as a real player, and I think that, you know, last year they benefited so much from having Roglic in the mix, at least for the first couple of weeks, and they were able to play Roglic and Vingegaard off against each other, and beautifully, that's how they ended up working over Pogacar on that epic stage in the Alps where he actually lost the jersey. But, so, having Kreuzweg there was going to be a real important playing card for them in the tour, and they just they just lost that. So now the focus is going to be much more around Vingegaard. So we'll see. He's you know he's had those legs, and the meetup that they had in Paris, Pogacar was clearly uh, a step above. But now he's going to come into clearly a step behind because he's lost a month of training, or at least several weeks. So we'll see where it goes. But it's going to be it'll be interesting. Obviously, for the the Vuelta, if Roglic doesn't do the, the tour, which I'm, I'm assuming won't, but unless the Kreuzberg crash is going to change them somehow. But I think the Giro Tour double is, is very hard to conceive of today, even though, you know, people can still do the Vuelta Tour, uh, but the Vuelta is not the Giro. And so I think uh, if you save Roglic for the Vuelta, you have a very good chance. He's already won it three times. Apparently, Remco is not going to defend the, the title, if I understand correctly. So that would give him even more opportunity. It's possible. But I guess what I'm saying is that 
uh, going to this year's tour, the dynamic has changed a little bit for them because all of a sudden he goes back Vingard as the defending champion and with no other real card to play as, a, as you know like they had last year with Roy Boots or like they were hoping to have this year with Kreuzberg. Yeah, and yeah, it sounds like the impossible slam got a little bit more impossible when Kreuzberg crashed out because you need team support. But they are in a position, I think, to. Well, you can't win three till you've won two. So the I'm sure the goal is for them to focus on winning the Tour de France. But if they do win the first two Grand Tours of the year, yeah, that is not unprecedented. That that has happened before, but no one's ever come close to winning all three. So I've done a bit more nerd stuff, James, for you, just looking back at the history of the Impossible Slam. And the teams who have won the first two Grand Tours of the year are Molteni in 1973, Eddie Merckx won the Vuelta and the Giro. Um, and then after having won those first two Grand Tours of the year, because the Vuelta was held in spring back at that point, I should say as well, won the Vuelta and the Giro, they didn't send a team to the Tour. No Italian teams went to the Tour de France that year. So the impossible slam could have happened that year, but 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 they, they, they didn't bother going to the Tour. Slightly more obscure version of this. The same team won the Vuelta and Giro in 1981. Uh, that was Giovanni Battaglin with the Inoxpran team. So they won the first two Grand Tours of 1981 and didn't send a team to the Tour. So there's a theme of winning the first two Grand Tours back in the 70s and early 80s and then just, just sacking off the Tour de France. Um, but then since then, no, nobody's come close. No one's won the first two of the year. And the best performance ever is by Benesto in 1992, who came third in the Vuelta with Pedro Delgado, and then Miguel Indurain won the Giro and Tour. So they were, they came first, first and third. But having come third in the Vuelta, which was the first Grand Tour of the year in 1992, you know, obviously they weren't anywhere close to doing the impossible slam because they'd failed before they even started. And there's been a few other notable performances, like Movistar have often finished riders you know, in the top five of all three Grand Tours. They... They came third, third and first in the Giro Tour and Vuelta in 2016 with Valverde third in the Giro and Quintana third in the Tour and first in the Vuelta. And Jumbo Visma actually were third in the Giro, third in the Tour and first in the Vuelta in 2019. But it just seems to be an extra level of difficulty, that, which is why I've called it the impossible slam, that makes winning all three of those races, especially in the modern era, just so much more complicated and difficult to feat because the peaking process is very difficult having the strength in depth and then getting through all three grand tours without crashes or mishaps or having the right form just makes it so difficult so I'm, I'm keeping a close eye on Jumbo through the run up to the Tour de France and the Tour de France to see how they're riding and whether whether they look like getting close to this or not so all eyes on Jumbo Visma for the Dauphiné and then the Tour de France this summer and then maybe the Vuelta a España at the end of the year. So, James, I've had a brilliant idea for a name for these dispatches from races. What would they be? Which is start at the finish. What do you think? <laughs> it's never been done before. So I'm happy to do it. I love doing these things. I have a lot of fun. And we're hearing a lot of uh, positive comments. People out, you know, when I'm at the races saying, you know, hey, I listen to your podcast. I quite enjoy doing them and chatting with you, obviously, about them and, and putting our heads together, mulling over the history that we, we, we've collected over these years and stuff. And, and the tour is, you know, a great opportunity just to 
I'll get on to the rebranding department. Okay, James, thanks very much. Good luck for the rest of the race, and we'll check back in with you next week. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. You have been listening to Rulo Conversations. Rulo Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rulo magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rulo and on Instagram at Rulo magazine or visit our website at Rulo.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.